And then you look at places like Saudi Arabia and, and that region of the world, which, you know, you would be surprised that they would be interested in nuclear, but they are. Uh, obviously, that they're very oil-dominated, uh, uh, fossil fuel-dominated. But I think that they've realized is, is that, you know, using oil for electricity supply, you know, how effective is that, right? Why are they using their own oil supplies to generate electricity when they could potentially uh, invest in nuclear power and then have that oil to sell? So I, I do think that there is support for nuclear globally. Um, it, you know, it, it is going to be interesting to watch where, where the rest of the world goes. Welcome to Inflection Points, a podcast series from Jacobs. I'm your host, Stephen Ludwig. That was the voice of Colin Jones, Vice President, Deputy General Manager of the Jacobs North American Nuclear Group. In our discussion, we talk about the development of nuclear energy in the United States, the cleanup of old nuclear contamination sites, the challenges and importance of those remediation projects, and the future demand of nuclear energy worldwide. There is a lot to learn from this great interview. The Jacobs Podcast is where we meet the people that help create solutions that deliver a more connected, sustainable world. With that, it's on with the podcast. Colin, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you explain a little bit about your background and, and how you wound up into the nuclear energy area and how you wound up at Jacobs? Sure, I certainly can. And uh, thanks for this opportunity, Steve. I really, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to talk about what I love doing every day. Uh, so, you know, I've been in this business for over 25 years. I know I'm dating myself when I say that, but, um, and it really is kind of a story of kind of, for me, falling into, um, I've kind of fallen into this nuclear business uh, accidentally. Um, you know, I, 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 from the UK originally, you might be able to tell from the accent. I was I was curious about where that that slight accent came from. Yeah, I, I've I've lived over <laughs> here for over twenty years now, so it's kind of a quasi American English accent. But um, yeah, I was doing a business degree um, at the University of Humberside, uh, which is in Hull, the northeast of the UK, in a place called Hull. Um, I was doing a four-year degree. In in the UK, they do the degrees programs a little differently. Usually the degree programs are three years, but this was a, little, a unique degree program. It was four years, and it gave you the opportunity in year three to take a, a year off from work in industry. Um, so it was a, a great opportunity to get some real work experience. So uh, at the time, uh, I turned off my resume to a bunch of different places, and I actually got recruited to work for a year with a company called British Nuclear Fuels. And then that was kind of the start of uh, of me, my career in the nuclear industry. Uh, I worked for them in, for a year in their corporate marketing department. And after I was done with that 12-month placement, they asked me, they said, once you've completed your final year of your degree, we'd like you to uh, come back and interview for a full-time position, which uh, which I did. So in 1994, September of 94, I, I started with uh, British Nuclear Fuels in the United Kingdom, uh, again, in their corporate marketing department. Um, I'd been there for two years, and they sent me over to the United States. Uh, United States was a big growth market for them at the time. Um, and I was it, it was offered to me as a kind of a, a career growth opportunity. Uh, initially, it was only supposed to be for two years, but as I just said earlier, it's been over 20 years. I came over here in October 90, 1996 uh, and, and didn't leave. Um, 
I was with BNFL for a, for a while over here. And then, you know, I, I bounced around a little bit. Um, I went to work for a, a national laboratory in nuclear power, the Idaho National Laboratory. Uh, I actually got to work in the United States Senate for a couple of years. Uh, and then I actually did a stint with the Department of Energy in their Office of Environmental Management uh, since, and then came back out into private industry. Uh, and now been with Jacobs for uh, just coming on two years. It sounds like a great accidental career. <laughs> like you've had a lot of twists and turns that turned out really well for you. Yeah, it, it is kind of interesting. Especially, you know, when you look at our business, it, obviously nuclear is obviously it's very, uh, very technical. Um, you, know, you know, and I don't have a, te- a technical background, but it's kind of been my career has been a little bit unique as, as kind of covering both the commercial industry side where I started my career then going into uh, um, into Congress, which was you know an unbelievable opportunity, and you just get to see the world from a different vantage point in in helping making uh, the laws around energy policy, which is actually fascinating for three years to be able to do that, and then actually to go work for the federal government in these programs, which again is is there is so many differences between the federal government and how they operate and, and commercial industry. And then being able to kind of bring all those kind of experiences together and then use them day to day in the job that I have now and helping run the North American Nuclear Group for uh, for Jacobs. Now, Jacobs does help clients around the world develop new nuclear facilities as well as run existing facilities. But your work is focused uh, a lot on working with the U.S. Department of Energy on environmental cleanup of old nuclear project sites. Is there is there a lot of nuclear waste to clean up in the United States? I'm I'm not you know we don't talk about that very often. Yes, it, it's uh, it's a well kept secret. There's not a lot of people that really kind of understand. It's one it's one of those whenever you go to a, a dinner party and you get asked the question, "Hey, what do you do?" and I can't I, I explain to people what I do and what you know what we do at Jacobs. Um, and everyone asks, do you glow at night? I'm sure that's the second. That's yeah, always yeah, yeah. A, yeah. one of the first yeah. questions. But a lot of people just don't have an appreciation. So the work that we do at North American Nuclear Group, we actually have we have 10 major uh, contracts that we manage on a daily basis. And that's nine of those contracts are supporting the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, the majority of those are in the Office of Environmental Cleanup. Um, we do do we have one contract out in Nevada that supports their nuclear security work, uh, and then we have an Office of Science project supporting Argonne National Lab. And then the one remaining contract we have up in Canada, which is is managing the Canadian nuclear laboratories. But as I mentioned, the lion's share of our work is in nuclear remediation and cleanup. And this really kind of started in the 1940s uh, uh, during World War II. And it really was back, if you go back in, in, in that time, it, it obviously is uh, World War II was dominating the global scene at the time, but there was a real belief that uh, the Germans and Adolf Hitler had access to nuclear technology. And so that kind of created a race um, to be able to, 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 to be able to have the access to nuclear weapons technology in recognizing how important that is uh, from a, a world security perspective. And um, so that really started off in 1943 up at the, the Hanford site, which is based in Washington state, um, is where you saw uh, a real kind of national endeavor 
uh, to go and actually create nuclear weapons. Uh, over the years, you know, this, you know, and it, the country, the United States has created thousands of nuclear weapons. At one point, they had over 100 sites um, responsible for different parts of the nuclear weapons production program. So in about 1989, uh, a lot of the states that were hosting these sites were started to get concerned about some of the environmental damage or the environmental mess that had been left behind as a result of this weapons-making program. So at that point, the federal government and the states decided that obviously the weapons program would continue as it was, but they would also create a separate environmental management program. Um, so that's how we really got started, uh, really focusing on cleaning up the environmental messes, if you like, that was left behind from the Manhattan Project. Um, as I mentioned, this is you know started back in 1943 up at the Hanford site. You know, one of the things that they needed back in those times it was access to a lot of land, and they needed water supply. And so, as you look at the Hanford site, which is 560 square miles, there was a few farmers and a few tribes on the land that they were that the federal government displaced, but it had access to the Columbia River. Uh, which is which goes right through the Hanford site. So if you can imagine back in the 1940s, they had tens of thousands of people relocate to this part of Washington State and started building nuclear facilities, like nuclear reactors, so that they could process uranium-based nuclear fuel, turn it into spent fuel, so that they could mine plutonium from that spent nuclear fuel to put into nuclear weapons. The, the the human feet that went into this is it it it's truly is amazing. Back in those days, they were designing and building reactors in the matter of eighteen months to two years, and obviously these these were smaller scale production reactors at the time. But just to kind of put that in context, some commercial utilities are building some new uh, commercial reactors in the state of Georgia right now. And that's probably taken them 10 years to be able to complete the design licensing and construction of those reactors, probably more than 10 years. So just to kind of, again, put it in a little bit of perspective of what was going on back in the 1940s at a site like Hanford. Now, that's, you know, talking about the Manhattan Project in World War II and that the federal government didn't really begin to look at these waste sites until 46 years later in 1989, if they started in 43. What didn't they know about nuclear waste or what the dangers were that we know that now? Like what would happen if we just left the waste there and left it alone? Right. You know, they, they these folks were truly were pioneers and that they, they were the leading edge of their industry at the time. And there was a lot of stuff that they didn't know. But, and that's one of the things as you look across the DUE complex and you go from site to site, you see how that learning matured and how the, the technology matured. And that actually, you can actually, as you follow that technology maturation around the DUE sites, you can actually see how that helped from a waste management perspective. Again, I'll go back to the Hanford site. And the reason I keep going back there is, is because it, the, it is one of the most contaminated sites in the world with regards to radiological and chemical um, contaminants. And it really was 
one of the one of the birthplaces of the nuclear industry as we know it today. You know, as part of this process in 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 being able to mine plutonium from spent nuclear fuel, they use a technology that they call reprocessing. And back in the day, Hanford again was they were one of the pioneers, and they used um, they tried out many different types of reprocessing technology before they selected the most effective technology. Um, and so as a result of that, this process that they use is, is an aqueous process as they take spent nuclear fuel, which is a solid, put it through a chemical process so that they can extract the plutonium. You're left with an, a, a liquid effluent, which is, is contaminated. Um, millions of gallons of this contaminated uh, waste was just poured in the ground or poured in cribs and trenches at the Hanford site. It wasn't until a few years later that they thought, Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should put them in underground tanks. And so as you look in the in the 50s and onwards, they actually ended up building uh, 177 uh, underground tanks, which now contain about 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. Wow. Um, which is, again, is just is an environmental liability that not most folks really know about. And so that, and that is the responsibility of DOE using contractors like Jacobs to be able to manage uh, to manage that waste. Now you mentioned Hanford's one of the worst sites in the country. There have been a number of you mentioned, I think, over a hundred sites that were being used at one point. And I think, if I understand correctly, most of those sites have been cleaned up and remediated. Why is the remaining work on these remaining sites so difficult? Why? What's taking so long and why is it so hard? Um, so yeah, we started off with 100 sites and now we're down to 16 sites. Um, and I would say the 16 sites are, are, are some of the hardest sites um, left. And, and again, is I think one of the big things is high level waste that we just talked about. That process I talked about, the 56 million gallons at Hanford. Uh, there's about 25 to 30 million gallons at the Savannah River site. It's based out in South Carolina. And they actually have some a smaller amount of high-level waste at the Idaho site. That really truly is is one of the big ticket items with regards to, as you look at the, the future cleanup and closure of these sites. It's some of the most challenging waste that they have to deal with, primarily because it's a liquid. It, obviously, liquid, it's movable. And the process that um, that we use, and it actually we are using this as an industry, are using this process at the Savannah River site to process that liquid waste into a glass form. Um, uh, we call it vitrification. Um, it's basically just using melters and glass frit combined with the high-level waste to make a glass block that can ultimately dis- be disposed of at a deep geologic repository one day. Um, and obviously, that makes sense in turning that liquid into a solid makes it so much easier to manage. What's a high-level waste versus a low-level waste? I don't. What's the difference there? Well, that, that's a good question because there is uh, right now the the definition of high-level waste is it's kind of the Department of Energy is looking at changing it. Historically, the high-level waste definition is has been based on the stage within which the waste was generated as it went through the the um, cycle to become a, as part of the weapons program, and I know that gets kind of a little bit complicated. The department now is looking at saying, "Hey, 
why don't we look at it based on its radiological content, based on how, uh, basically in, in layman's terms, how hot is it? Because depending on, there's different types of radioactive waste, the high-level waste being considered to be uh, the most dangerous and, re- and requiring um, the most security safeguards and management. Um, we have uh, plutonium-contaminated waste, which is uh, equipment that has been contaminated with plutonium as part of the weapons-making program. Now, that has um, a measured degree of of units that are actually measured to dictate whether or not it's got a transuranic waste. And we actually have a disposal path for that kind of waste right now. And um, that goes to the waste isolation pilot plant, which is in New Mexico, um, which is an underground repository based in a salt formation, uh, which has actually been operational for uh, about 20 years now and is actually doing a pretty good job of being able to dispose of that kind of waste. And then we have low level waste. Low-level waste, for the most part, is contaminated buildings and facilities. And a, a lo- what we do with that is a lot in a lot of places we will build on-site disposal cells, or there actually is some commercial disposal cells that can actually dispose of low-activity wastes. They each of the disposal cells will have something they call a waste acceptance criteria, which will dictate the range. Of, of waste that they can take and that can be disposed of in those facilities. So you talked about turning uh, the liquid waste into glass and then burying the glass. Uh, that's astounding technology. That's really interesting. But I'm curious about, I guess from a layperson's point of view, we kind of know that when stuff gets in the ground or groundwater, it can move around. It sort of doesn't follow logically because I can't see it like a time-lapse video. But why is groundwater and soil contamination, why is that so dangerous? And and how does it move in the ground? And so why do we have to pay so much attention to that? Well, and again, that is one, as you look at the activities that we undertake as part of this the cleanup program and in each of our contracts, you can really kind of bucket them into several areas. There's the high-level waste that we've been talking about. There's facility uh, demolition and decommission and deactivation. And these are f- nuclear facilities that in some cases have been operating for 30 years and have become highly contaminated. And we have to very, very carefully take those down and so that we're, uh, our ability to be able to manage uh, the contamination that is is built into the, the, the concrete or the equipment that was contained in those buildings. And then there's the, the, the soil and groundwater that we remediate. So those are kind of the three buckets, the soil and groundwater. So, for example, I talked about up at Hanford there where in the early days that they were, um, they were actually pouring uh, waste just directly into the ground. So what the and there is a real science behind this. We've actually looked at you know how deep the soil pack is. When do you start? When do they hit water? Where does that water potentially travel to for the drinking source? And as a result of that, we're actually able to put in wells around those areas to be able to suck up contaminated water and then to clean it and re-inject clean water back into those areas. One of the things, again, at Hanford, which is uh, that Jacobs has been directly involved in now for over 10 years, has been the, the, the soil and groundwater program there, 
as I mentioned again, is, is you've got those 177 tanks. Some of those tanks have actually leaked. And again, as, as, the, as the contaminants, they go through the soil and they will eventually hit um, water, which will then make its way to the Columbia River. The Columbia River is only 10 miles away from, uh, from the, the Hanford tank farms. So over a number of years, it could eventually leak. It could, it could travel through the ground yes. into the river. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Obviously, that has actually happened. But what we've done is we've been able to create a series of wells around uh, around the tank farms and in the locations from based on our science and engineering to be able to give us the best opportunity to be able to prevent that from happening. And we actually treat billions of gallons of water each year. Um which is just, again, again, it's just fascinating that we're able to pull that much water out of the ground, treat it, and then push it back in again to be able to protect the environment. And I would say, you know, obviously that this has been going on for a number of decades right now. And as you look at the state of the Columbia River, um, it, you know, it's obviously much cleaner today than it has been previously in the past. And we've done an excellent job Um being able to clean up that river and be able to protect that natural resource. That's that's amazing work. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit on you. So ever since the three-mile accident in the United States in 1979, nuclear power really went out of favor in this country. But there's currently about 60 nuclear power plants operating in the U.S., and they're all getting kind of old. As with any facility, there has to be a natural lifespan to these things, what happens when these old nuclear plants come to the end of their natural life and need to be shut down? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, obviously, electricity supply and you know clean electricity supply is more, is is very important. Uh, there's a enormous debate about security of supply, uh, climate change. Um, all those things are very important topics. Just to be clear, our focus in North American nuclear right now for Jacobs is, is on the cleanup. We're actually not directly involved today in the United States on supporting any of the commercial nuclear plant work. Our colleagues overseas, though, at, at Critical Mission Solutions International, uh, are the folks, the team in the UK, they are actually, they are involved in some nuclear projects new nuclear projects over there where we're going to be helping out as a program manager in helping build uh, new nuclear capabilities in in UK and the rest of Europe. But specifically in the US, you're right, there's there's actually about 100 operating reactors today. They generate about 20% of our electricity supply clean. There's no zero emissions. And actually the reliability of the nuclear uh, reactor fleet is is absolutely fantastic. They're well from a reliability perspective. They're well in the ninety percent range, which means that they're basically pumping out their churning, uh, creating electricity uh, on a on a daily on a daily basis. Um, you know, as you can tell, I'm a big uh, a big proponent of the nuclear industry. <laughs> you know, I just you know I think Three Mile Island was uh, did change the industry significantly at this time. About that time. All the reactors had been built, but it really did put a halt on on reactors, and that's had a number of different um, impacts on the nuclear industry. I think we lost a lot as a nation from a nuclear development uh, perspective on reactor technology, also from a supply chain perspective too. 
um, as you look at the nuclear supply chain in the United States, wasn't a, it isn't as strong now as it was back in the 60s and 70s when we were building all those reactors. Those reactors are starting to come towards the end of their life. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they license reactors. Their original license would have been for, um, for 30 or 40 years. And actually, a lot of reactors have gone through life, what we call life extension programs. So they have to prove to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that they can, main, they can maintain safe operations of those reactors. So what you see at each of the individual reactors um, through their maintenance programs, you will see a lot of the, the, the reactors today don't look the same as they look like uh, 20 or 30 years ago when they originally became operational. There's been a lot of updates with regards to the reactors and the safety of those reactors from the operational that they've gone to digital technology now. There have been leaps and bounds in the reactor technology, and they've been able to incorporate those new technologies into the actual reactors that we have today. You would think with this put, you would think with the push for clean energy, people would be more enthusiastic about nuclear in North America, but it's not coming back. Are there are there various market forces that are blowing against that? Yeah, I think there are. I think some of it is related, significantly related to to cost. Right. I mean, you know, we talk about the, the two reactors that are being built in, in Georgia right now, Plan Vogel. Um, you know, the, it, there's been scheduled delays and cost increases. We're talking 10 plus billion dollars um, to build a reactor. And, you know, if, depending if you're a regulated utility or deregulated utility, your ability to be able to raise that amount of funds or have your shareholders agree to be able to invest in a technology like that uh, can vary. And and the other thing that nuclear is competing against right now is natural gas. You know, as everybody has heard of the fracking technology and the the significant increase in natural gas. I mean, there you know some evidence that we have over a hundred year supply of natural gas. I mean, we're exporting natural gas right now. Um, that we have such an um, abundant supply. And you're looking at a natural gas facility plant that can generate electricity that you can build for a couple of hundred million dollars versus a couple of, you know, tens of billions of dollars for a nuclear plant. Obviously, as investors look at that, you know, the, that will obviously play into into ut- into utilities decision making. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in an all of the above uh, strategy, right? I think there's a place for for nuclear, for renewables, as a, as a nation, you know, that we need to be looking at all those available technologies, especially the clean ones, and recognizing the impact on the environment and the climate and how important that is for the future. Yeah. I think most people don't know that in 2017, I looked this up, the United States did become the world's largest natural gas producer, which I'm sure would surprise a lot of folks. Now, you for a number of reasons that you shared nuclear has lost favor in the United States, but you mentioned earlier that uh, part of Jacobs internationally is helping clients around the world uh, with nuclear facilities. How do you see that global market for nuclear facilities? I definitely think that, you know, as you look at, uh, you know, China has really embraced nuclear technology. 
Uh, and then you look at places like Saudi Arabia and, and that region of the world, which, you know, w- you would be surprised that they would be interested in nuclear, but they are. Uh, obviously, that they're very oil-dominated, uh, uh, fossil fuel-dominated. But I think that they've realized is, is that, you know, using oil for electricity supply, you know, it, how effective is that, right? Why are they using their own oil supplies to generate electricity when they could potentially... Uh, invest in nuclear power and then have that oil to sell. So I, I do think that there is support for nuclear globally. Um, it, you know, it, it is going to be interesting to watch where where the rest of the world goes. The other big component in nuclear right now too is up until this point, we've had these thousand megawatt kind of reactor types, uh, even up to 1600 megawatt reactor types. There is a big push now to look at what we call a small modular reactors. And that is one area where the, we have a number of U.S. vendors that are, are trying to play in that area. And whether or not that, you know, so you're not looking at making such a large commitment and building a 1,000 or 1,600 megawatt reactor. Maybe you can build a 50 megawatt reactor. Maybe that's more helpful in, in, in more remote, remote regions. Maybe you can make it more modular that you can just kind of add in on 50 megawatts at a time. Um, so, and there is some safety benefits. Uh, I'm no expert in the small modular reactor technology, but um, they do tout, you know, safety benefits um, as well um, to the small modular reactors. It's interesting when you say modular, I always think of like the Lego building block approach to building, but I get it's far more complicated than slapping some Legos together. No, but that's the that's what the principle is based on though. And, and again, this is not a particularly new technology because when you think of, again, I, the naval nuclear program plays a very big part in our industry. And you look at nuclear submarines, right? They have, um, they're powered by a nuclear reactor on a submarine. That is kind of the genesis of small modular reactors. So, but no, that's how the, the, the small modular reactor vendors will tell you it is just like Lego blocks, adding one uh, with another and making it modular. Interesting. So I'm sure we could talk for another few hours about all aspects of environmental cleanup for nuclear, running a facility and doing that safely. This new modular conversation we're having is super interesting and in, in how there's a many a lot of areas we didn't touch on and how nuclear energy and nuclear ideas are used in industry as well as the military. But beyond all those things, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to mention? You know, obviously, I've been doing this for uh, for 25 years, and and will do this for the rest of my career, no doubt. I would just, you know, it's highlighting the people what an amazing mission this is, as in recognizing the 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 historical importance of nuclear weapons technology, and it's how it helped end World War II, how it helped prevent. Uh, the Cold War, you know, with the standoff between the United States and Russia, the, the you know the political implications it had. We're playing, we're now playing our part, and we have done for the last twenty over twenty years in being able to clean up the environment that resulted from the the creation of those nuclear weapons. So to me, this is a it's such a, a vital and important mission. I like to talk about us being environmental superheroes, and again, it's it, it's not a mission that a lot of, not a lot of people know about. There's over twenty thousand contractors working in this environmental cleanup business, and I can't stress enough the importance of the people 
the Jacobs, we're very lucky to have some of the m- most talented people in this business. They've been working in this business for a long time. They, some of which would have gotten their start in the nuclear weapons program, mining and milling plutonium pellets. I mean, as you could imagine doing that for a job and now being responsible for being able to uh, uh, clean up the liability that was left behind from those nuclear manufacturing those nuclear weapons. Our people really are top notch. And one of the driving principles and one of the most important factors for us is safety. As you can imagine, the environment that our people work in, the people who are on these sites, um, you know, they're f- they're facing radiological hazards, chemical hazards, not to mention your normal industrial type hazards of being on a construction site, because that's what it's kind of akin to. Even though we're demolishing, decommissioning, demolishing these buildings, it, they, they are kind of like construction sites. So you just got to kind of think about all those hazards and the lengths that we go to to keep our people safe in recognizing how important they are. Our mantra is, is that, you know, any individual that comes to work every day, they're going to leave. They're going to leave at the end of the day in the, in the same great physical condition that they came to work at the start of the day. So I can't emphasize enough um, with regards to the people that we have supporting our business and putting Jacobs in such a good place to be able to go and execute this business for the federal government and for the Department of Energy on such on such a crucial mission. That's that's great. Where can people find more information if they want to find out more about what you're doing? They go to Jacobs uh, Jacobs.com. We have information there about the work that we do uh, throughout the United States. Great. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. This was a terrific interview. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inflection Points, a podcast series from Jacobs. To find out more, please visit jacobs.com. Jacobs, challenging today, reinventing tomorrow.